share moments with each other, share moments with him, uh, for what he did for us on the cross. And uh, now we get to dive into God's word and hear a message from it that will hopefully bless our lives, will change us, will make us into the kind of people that God wants us to be, and most of all, into the, the church that God wants us to be. And as you can see, we're going to start a series today entitled Church Blueprints. And on the picture in your, in your uh, bulletin there, and uh, even probably on the screen, when we think of blueprints for a church, we think of a physical place. We think of walls and, and different uh, you know, pieces of, of uh, you know, drawings that we can, we can build from. Anybody in construction can, well, not anybody in construction. <laughs> I shouldn't say anybody. <laughs> You're trained well. In construction, you can take these blueprints and you can build something out of it. When we, when we talk about church blueprints, however, we're not talking about a building. We're talking about a people. We're talking about an organization of individuals who have come together to, be, to, to build community. To build a... Really, it's a bride of Christ. There are a lot of churches out there all accomplishing some good. However, I'm not one to aim for close. You know, they say close is only good in hand grenades and horseshoes. I'm not one to, to aim for close. I want the church at Loveland to align with God's word as closely as possible. I want us to do church God's way. The church is his bride. I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back for his bride someday. He's coming back for the church, not the building, not the building we meet in. He's not taking any buildings to heaven with him. He's taking the people with him to heaven. And I want us to be that bride. Let's say that, that Carol, my good wife, finds out that, that John and Adam... And, and Terry over here, they, they really like meatloaf. And um, so she begins serving meatloaf every single night for dinner. And of course, being a good husband, I wouldn't put, you know, I would, I would put up with it for a while. And, you know, I would, you know, try to compliment it and try to, you know, be encouraging. But then I lovingly and kindly would let her know that meatloaf is not my favorite meal even though I don't mind it at all. A week or so goes by without any meatloaf. Then Carol hears on the news. She hears on the news that 90% of all men like meatloaf. So again, the, she began serving meatloaf three and four times a week. Once again, I sit down with Carolyn and I again explain that I really don't like meatloaf. She responds with, but, but most every guy likes meatloaf. And it's really easy for me to make, and I really enjoy making it. It makes me feel good when I make meatloaf. Guys, if you were in my shoes, how would you feel at this point? Would you feel loved? Would you feel cared for? Well, uh, you know, Carol's really trying her best. But she's just not doing what I like, right? I believe, 
And I kind of think that this is the way God feels at times. There are congregations, brides, if you will, all over the world that are doing church. Not just as individuals, but, you know, like as a church, as a, as a, as a group. They're attempting to be that bride. I don't want us to be that bride that doesn't pay attention to what God likes. I don't want to serve God meatloaf every single Sunday morning and every day of our lives if God doesn't like meatloaf. This series is going to help us determine how to do God, how to do God a favor and do God's, God's church His way. To do it His way. There will be lots to learn about Jesus' bride, the church. But as individuals, we'll be able to gain some valuable information about what we need to do as well. Let's open our Bibles. Because, really, the only way we're going to understand how to do church God's way is to get into His Word. Let's open our Bibles and we're going we're gonna to look at a passage of Scripture. And, and this whole entire series is kind of uh, based out of one particular book in the New Testament. And it's a small book entitled 1 Timothy. I want you to find it in your Bibles. Look it up on your apps. If you've got a Bible app, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are, there are a few Bibles. Well, there used to be. No, there's still a stack of Bibles back there. If, uh, if you don't have one, grab one. I want you to look in your Bibles. The Bible is kind of God's textbook for life. How many of you used to, they don't do that anymore in schools, or very rarely do they do that in schools. How many of you remember carrying textbooks around? You remember carrying textbooks around? I mean, I used to have a pile of textbooks. I used to cover them with, with um, um, paper bags, yeah. And um, the, the real smart people, or the real, real smart people, would write the answers to the test on the back of those books and, um, you know, be able to lay it on the floor and, and cheat. I never did that. But, you know, some people, some people did. The Bible is kind of God's textbook for life. It's kind of his way of allowing us to see what he wants in life. So we're going to dive into 1 Timothy. And and Timothy is an interesting book. Uh, Paul wrote to this individual, Timothy. And we're going to talk about the who, where, and what. Um, But let's read this 1 Timothy passage. Chapter 1, the very first chapter in 1 Timothy. Did you guys all find Timothy? It's right in between a bunch of T's. right? The the T brothers are right there in the middle. Right there at the end of uh, the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look at verse 1 with me. This letter is from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, appointed by the command of God, our Savior in Christ Jesus, who gives us hope. I am writing to Timothy, my true son in the faith. May God the Father, Christ Jesus our Lord, give you grace, mercy, and peace. When I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those who, whose teaching is contrary to the truth. The great thing about this letter is it's very much upfront about who it is. You ever get one of those letters in the mail where you have to look down to the bottom of it to see who it's from before you go back and actually read? Because you need some context, right? You need to know who it's from. This one is right up front. Paul tells us exactly who he is. He's writing to Timothy. And the purpose of this letter is to help Timothy respond correctly to life and also correctly to, to guide the church in Ephesus. Timothy was kind of a key player, an important role. He played an important role in this first century church. He, ta- he was talked about often in Paul's writings. And, and we see from this book that Paul was really trying to cultivate Timothy into a great leader. And, and maybe even to replace Paul when Paul moved on. Ephesus was a church that Paul established. And he left Timothy there to serve. And Timothy was written this book 
And uh, it was directly about the church in Ephesus. There were many problems in the church, but it's funny how it only takes a couple of a couple of sentences before Paul just comes right out and says exactly why he's writing this letter or what this letter is going to be about. It says there's some there's some trouble in Ephesus, Timothy. There's some people that are not teaching correctly. Look down just a little bit further in Timothy, and we'll get to chapter 3 later on in this series, but I want you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. Look at it with me. It says, I am writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the house of God. There it is, the blueprints, what the church is to be. I'm writing you so that you can help people understand how to conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God who is the pillar and foundation of the truth. We're going to, for the next several weeks, pull out of this letter written to Timothy and apply to ourselves as a church and as individuals. So, you willing to go with me? You willing to take this, this journey? Roll out the blueprints and see what this building, or not this building... This church is going to look like? I think it'll be fun. So, the title of our message this morning is Warning, because the Bible can mess you up. What? I thought you just said that it was the textbook. I thought you just said we could get good stuff out of it. How can it mess you up? How many of you own a compass? Anybody own a compass in some, somewhere in a drawer somewhere? If I were to hand you a compass this morning and a good topographical map of this area, and gave you coordinates, or gave you, uh, yeah, coordinates, uh, could you use that compass to get to a particular place on that map? How many of you could do that? Is there anybody? There's a few of you, okay. How many of you, I gave you a compass and a map, you're like, I have no idea how to use this thing. Yep, that's, that's north, that's about it. Yeah, right? The Bible's kind of the same way. If we don't have the understanding, we don't have to understand how to get into it and understand it better and be able to use it for our benefit, uh, it's sort of difficult to understand. God didn't design it to be difficult, but I think when we start to, to mess with it and do things with it that aren't appropriate, uh, I think it can mess us up. So we're going to look at how to recognize dangerous Bible teaching. And we're going to look and try to figure out how to find the real deal and even try to how, to how to navigate that Old Testament. Old Testament is kind of strange. A lot of weird things out there, uh, back there in that Old Testament. And so we're going to have to talk about that just a little bit this morning too. So to start with, let's recognize how, uh, uh, what dangerous Bible teaching looks like. First Timothy chapter 1, let's look at verse 3. He said there, he comes right out and says, When I left Macedonia, I urge you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the, to the truth. Look at verse 4. He says, Don't let them waste their time in endless discussion of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations, which don't help people live a life of faith in God. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. But some people have missed this, this point. They have turned away from these things and spend their times, time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they're talking about, even though they speak so confidently. The real problem here in Ephesus 
where there was these bogus Bible teachers. They were a real problem. And Paul addresses it immediately in this book to Timothy. Before we go any further, I need to understand that. How do you make a name for yourself? Well, whether it be in science, uh, if you, it's just a, a thinker, uh, uh, some sort of philosophy or psychology or, or psychiatry or, or really theology. You have to make a name for yourself. And in order to have a name for yourself today or a thousand years ago, you had to come up with something new and novel. A new and novel idea. No one wants to follow someone who has, who has gone in the past and no longer is alive today. Nobody wants to follow somebody or a thought that has passed. If you don't have a new and novel idea, then what do we need you for? And second, in order to make a name for yourself today or a thousand years ago, it had to be something deep and complex. If people can't fully understand what you say, then you must be pretty smart, right? <laughs> this happens very often in religious circles, especially with those who have been a Christian for a long time. When we think we know a little bit about a subject, then some new thinker comes along and has a deep and complex idea. We fall for it as if it were inspired. New Christians usually aren't too distracted by it. New people coming in that are just trying to get an understanding of what God's all about usually aren't, dis- dis- uh, you know, aren't, aren't distracted by those things. Remember the, the emperor who had some new clothes? <laughs> they can see that the emperor's naked. From this passage, we can identify three signs of a bogus Bible teacher. In that 1 Timothy 1 passage in verse 4, look at it with me. It says, Don't let them waste their time in endless discussions of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless what? Speculation. It might be prophecy. It might be putting all these Old Testament numbers together. You remember the, a couple of years ago, the Da Vinci Code that came out? People got sidetracked and distracted and messed up and all of that. You know, it's, it's funny because like the whole Da Vinci Code thing was, was around clear back in Paul's time. It existed clear back then. It's not new. It's just speculation. It's just a guess at what it might be. It's mildly entertaining, but let me tell you, it's not worth taking notes on. It's simply speculation. He goes on to controversy. There are times, there's times for controversy, but not among Christians. The reason we need to quiet the bogus Bible teachers is because they, they cause unnecessary controversy. There are many, many Christians that get caught up in discussions about random, not real important debates. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, Paul tells Timothy, he says, Again I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. Kids ever get in an argument like that? Really? You're going to argue about that? And you know what happens? Like two days later, Carol and I get in an argument that's over something even stupider than kids were arguing about. You've got to be careful. When it starts happening within the church, it causes a lot of problems. The purpose for the truth is not to get into camps and figure out who's smart and who's spiritual. We aren't trying to figure out who can understand it and who can't. The truth is not for the purpose of controversy. Titus chapter 3 and verse 9 says, Do not get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These things are useless and a waste of time. 
If people are causing divisions among you, first give them a, a first warning and a second warning, and after that have nothing to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth, and their own sins condemn them. We don't want to get messed up in those, those controversies. And thirdly, confident ignorance. The Timothy passage, look back at it with me. Let's see if I can find it back up here. It says in verse 7, he sa- it says, Even though they speak so confidently, right? There's some confidence in their, in their speech, but it's only of ignorance. They're so sure, but really, they don't have a clue. Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29, it says, The Lord our God has secrets known to no one. We are not accountable for them, but we and our children are accountable forever for all that has been revealed to us, so that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. We're not given all the answers. God doesn't give us all of the answers, but he gives us the ones that are needed. Anytime my focus is on things that God has not plainly revealed to us, I'm reaching for speculation and I'm probably causing controversy and becoming confidently ignorant. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 13 says, Our letters have been straightforward. I love a message that's straightforward, that's not difficult and not hard to understand. I like it simple and just straightforward. He says, if there's nothing written between the lines and nothing you can't understand. And then he says, I hope someday that you will fully understand us. It's how to recognize the bogus. It's how to recognize the fraudulent and the frivolous. If it's speculation, if it's controversial, or if it's coming across confidently ignorant, stay away. So that's how to to find the bogus and the, the, the crazy and the fraudulent. Now let's look at the real deal. Look at what what Paul tells Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 5 with me. He says, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with what? Love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. But some people have missed the whole point. They have turned away from these things and spend their time in meaningless discussion. In order to recognize the real deal, we have to understand that it produces agape love. Every time we study the Bible, we get this, this unconditional love, this sacrificial type love. This book should produce love. When we read it, when we study it, when we preach it, when we meditate on it, it should produce an authentic love. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us the definition. We hear it at at weddings often. It says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but don't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. How does God say we need to make a name for ourselves? By loving others. That's where it's at. Preacher, that's too simple for me. No? Try it. See what it's like. It's worthwhile. Verse 3 says, If I give everything I have to the poor, even sacrifice my body, I could boast about it. But if I don't love others, I I have gained nothing. And then he goes on to describe what real love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
Love is not jealous. It's not boastful or proud. Everything else that it produced from reading and studying the Bible is bogus Bible teaching. It might be interesting. It might think you feel smart if, if you think you understand it better than someone else. But if the study doesn't produce love, it's out of line. It's pointless. Paul is telling Timothy that he should stay away from that kind of teaching. Kick it out of the church. Get rid of it. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1, it says, Now regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. I can't apologize for talking so often about love. We read the book Love Does. We, we dive into friends praying for friends. We have friendship evangelism. All of these different things that we try to get established here in the church. It's really nothing more than genuine love. That's what it's all about. If I'm not constantly pursuing this unconditional sacrificial love, I am becoming self-centered. I'm becoming consumed in my own desires. I'm just tired of putting the needs of others before my own. Think about it. How many times this week did you go out of your way to put your needs aside and put someone else's needs in front of your own? That's what we're talking about. That's real, the real deal. That's real Bible teaching. That's, that's real Bible study. That's where it's at. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1 says, Write this letter to the angel in the church of Ephesus. Same church, right? Timothy's at Ephesus. Clear in the back of the Bible, John's writing this. Jesus is write, telling John to write these things to the church in Ephesus. Look at what it says. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars, describing Jesus here. Seven stars in his right hand, and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know all the things that you do. Okay, he's describing the church in Ephesus. Look at the way he describes it. He says, I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. Is that terms that, that can describe the church at Loveland? I know you don't tolerate evil people. You, you have examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not. You have discovered that they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Sounds like a pretty good church, don't you think? But look at what he says. I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Love is the key here. I think this passage is talking uh, about a, a feeling. We, think, we often think it's, a, it's an emotional thing. We just, we just don't feel like we, we love God as much as we used to. I just don't feel as close to God as I used to. I just don't feel as close to the church as I used to. Why is that? Look at what it says. It's not talking about a feeling here. This word for love is this unconditional, sacrificial type love where, where we put the needs of others before our own. Verse 5, it says, Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. Love is action. 
Maybe you haven't ever done these things. The works that show your love for God and others. Maybe now's the time to start. Don't wait. The change from serving self to serving God and others is a, is a courageous one. But a change that you'll never regret. Human nature leads us to start thinking of ourselves. The real deal, good Bible teaching and study will lead us into agape love. The real deal is going to lead us to love. And secondly, the real deal is going to make us focus on character, obedience, and trusting in God. Look at verse 5 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers will be filled with love. That comes from what? A pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. This verse says pure heart, which is sort of a Bible term for for character, for good character. When we look at the Bible, we look for ways of building character. Secondly, a clear conscience, which is basically obedience. In order to have a clear conscience, we've got to obey what God asks us to do. Doing the right thing leads to a clear conscience. Rebelling and misbehaving and disobeying, our conscience is no longer clear. There's guilt that builds up. Yesterday, Corbin had an awful start. We were able to sleep in yesterday for a few minutes. Well, a few minutes past 6 o'clock. Um, and so we were laying there in bed, and here comes Corbin here. Little feet on the floor and comes running in. And he reaches up, and he, in a very demanding voice, he slaps his mom and says, Mom, bottle. And I just wanted to jump out of bed and go, pow, you know, no, we're not going to do that. But he started out that way. He crawled up in bed and he's just real demanding. Like, no, you can just lay here for a little bit. It just kept going and going and going. So finally I got up and I went and got him a bottle. Got him a bottle, warmed it up, came back and handed it to him. And his mom made a big deal out of saying thank you. Say thank you to dad. Nope. His lips were totally. You know, and you could see they're thinking about it and they're just not gonna do it. And so we took the bottle away. No, say thank you to dad. Nope, not gonna do it. Give dad a hug. Nope, wouldn't get up. How about a fist bump? His hand was two inches from my hand. Just give me a fist bump. Nothing. He wouldn't do it. Total rebellion. How do they learn that stuff? I don't teach them that. They're like, okay, here's how to be rebellious. When your mom says this, just, just do the opposite, all right? We don't go around teaching our kids how to lie and how to cheat and how to be rebellious. How do they learn that stuff? It's way down inside, isn't it? Clear conscience, obeying what God wants us to obey, is how we get that that clear conscience that he's talking about here. And thirdly, genuine faith. Really trusting in God. Reading the Bible should help us trust God more. Any scripture we read should should lead us into one of these, all of these three things. It will it will help me to trust God more. It will allow me to see where I'm where I'm being obedient and disobedient. It should help us build good character as well. Figured out what bogus Bible teaching is. We figured out what the real deal looks like. Now let's kind of look at just a few things about the Old Testament. Look at what Paul tells Timothy. 
in chapter 1 there in verse 8. It says, we know that the law is good when used correctly. For the law was not intended for people who do what is right. But it is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father and mother and commit, commit other murders. The laws for people who are sexually immoral and who practice homosexuality and are slave traders, liars and promise breakers, and who do anything else that can contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. Wow, that's a list. We have to understand that the Old Testament is not a stairway to heaven. It's not ways to get to God. That's not going to help us get closer to Him. It's not a stairway to heaven. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, it says, For no one can ever be right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. It's not a ruler to see if we mess up. You know, I think a lot of times we carry we carry our own rulers around. This is how big I am spiritually. And I carry this ruler with me. And I come across, I come across Ron and I, I stand my ruler up next to Ron's ruler. So how do I compare? Well, Ron's a spiritual giant, so I'm going to feel short when I'm around Ron. So I'm going to go find somebody else that's not quite so spiritual and I'm going to measure up to them and see if I measure up. That's what looking at the old law looks like. We, we, we look at ourselves like, well, how good am I and how bad am I? That's, that's the Old Testament way of thinking. Secondly, it exposes our sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 5 through 7, it says, When we were, we were controlled by our old nature, <laughs> sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused those evil desires that produced a harvest of evil of sinful deeds resulting in death. Corbin earned himself a spanking that morning because he would not shape up. Mom turned him over and smacked his butt a bit and he cried a bit and, and it sort of helped changed his, his ways a bit but those evil desires down inside it wasn't until mom said you tell dad thank you for that bottle that he rebelled against it right so when the law is shared when the law is there when the rule is set when the standard is set we know exactly how to rebel against it don't we because that's built in that's like there that's what the law does. It exposes our sin. It makes us understand that, you know what? We're not quite where we need to be. Verse 6 says, but, we, but, no, but now we have been released from the law. For we died to it and there's no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God. Not in the old way of obeying, obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. Well, then I'm suggesting that the law of God is sinful. Well, of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would have never known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. Comes quite naturally though, doesn't it? But I don't teach that to my kids. I hope you don't, but it comes naturally. It doesn't, it doesn't just, just you, don't, you don't have to go to school to learn that stuff. It's just there. We all feel it. And you know what? It's really easy to be demanding. It's really easy to be selfish. It's pretty natural. The law exposes our sin. It points it out that there might be a problem here. And thirdly, it points us to Christ. Galatians chapter 3, look at this one, verse 10. It says, but those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is the one 
is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. If that were the case, we'd be in trouble, right? Verse 11. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. Verse 13, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse of our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, curses anyone who is hung on a tree. And look at where he goes next down in verse 24. He says, let me put it another way. The law was our, our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. How do you look at the Old Testament? You don't see it as a stairway to heaven. You understand that it's, it's there to expose our sin. We have to understand that it's there so that we can be led to Christ Jesus. It's there to bring us to him. It points us to the cross. So let's end real quick with this. So how do we study our Bible? How do we, how do we read it? Just a couple of things. I want to share one more verse with you. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And I love this translation. The NLT is amazing on this one. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. We read the Bible to find out what God is like. Simply put, we find out how, what God is like, and second, we find out how to live. When you ask those two questions, when you read and study your Bible, you'll land yourself in agape-type love. Every time you read, every time you study, every time you come to services, that's the goal. To land in an unconditional, sacrificial love of God and others. We'll build character. We'll find out what it means to obey. We'll learn how to trust in God. God's word will show us those things. It's really those two questions that I try to, to answer every single Sunday morning when I get up in front and present a message. It's those two questions. What is God like? And how are we supposed to respond to it? What should I do? How should I change my life to be a different person for him? How can I become more like he wants me to be? So, the warning's been out. The warning's been sent out. The Bible can mess you up. You get distracted and all those little silly things, don't let it distract you. If it's producing love, if it's producing that agape type love, if it's building character within, if you're gaining that understanding of what it, what it means to be right and what it means to be wrong, that's what it's talking about. And also what it means to trust an almighty God. I think a lot of our problems is when it comes to trust, it's, it, we just don't trust him enough. A lot of times we have problems in life that, that I think would be solved if we would just trust in God. Well, I just don't know what's going to happen. I just, I just can't plan. I can't, I can't predict what's going to take place. Well, you just need to trust in God. And God's word can do that for us. So the blueprints are out. At least the first, first, of, first of ten are out. 
we got a lot of work to do. There's lots of things we can learn from this passage of Scripture. And uh, in just a few minutes, we'll, we'll break up into small group discussions.